You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Ambassador Dorothy Shea, Ambassador to Lebanon. She started that duty February 14th. Uh, She was appointed ambassador. A 28-year distinguished career in the Foreign Service. Before that, served as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Cairo. Before that, as Deputy Consul General in Jerusalem. Welcome, Dorothy, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. We're also joined by my colleague and friend, John Alterman, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Middle East Program. John, thank you for being with us. It's good to be with you, Steve. So let's start with the with the big picture, Dorothy. The crisis that Lebanon finds itself in, which you can sort of describe quickly in terms of this multidimensional accelerating crisis that really threatens state failure, violent instability, worsening health and humanitarian crisis. Tell us, how did we reach this point? And then tell us a bit about What's the U.S. approach on this? The magnitude and complexity of this is daunting. It's moving forward at a fast pace. The August 4th Beirut port explosion certainly propelled things forward, but there was lots of pre-existing bad developments and trajectories before that. Over to you. Okay. Thank you, Steve. And uh, I will say that when I was confirmed as ambassador, the powers that be at the State Department wanted me to get out here right away because the writing was on the wall that Lebanon was in all likelihood going to default for the first time on its euro bond debt. The economy had been deteriorating for many months, and it was truly in crisis. And they were like, just get out there. And my mandate was very much crisis management. So I came out here, and indeed, that is what happened. And and I, I came to appreciate very quickly that Lebanon was facing a budget crisis, a fiscal crisis, a trade imbalance situation way out of uh, distort control, exchange rate disruptions that really went crazy after the default. And, you know, how did we get here in response to that question? I would say it's the cumulative effect of decades of corruption and financial mismanagement, pure and simple, cross-sectarian. And all of this has led to a major crisis in confidence in the Lebanese economy. Put on top of that, the global pandemic, which really did a number on the economy as well. And then the horrific August 4th explosion, which not only destroyed a good part of the city, but took out several hospitals and clinics and just has left people fed up with the government and I don't have any hard numbers, but a lot of anecdotal evidence that people are voting with their feet. And those with the means, the middle class citizens that we need to be part of the solution are very tempted to just make their lives elsewhere right now. Yeah, I saw one estimate, 400,000 citizens, professionals mostly exiting the medical sphere and particularly mass exodus. Over to John. Are you surprised that there's not more political agitation to advocate reform. There had been a reform movement. That's what prompted the resignation of Prime Minister Hariri 
a year ago, after a year of protests, we're kind of back where we started, except there aren't protests. Is that surprising? You know, it would be, except I, I did hear from a couple folks who are involved in the protest movement, and they actually, before October 17th, which marked the one-year anniversary of the uprising, they said, do not judge us by the size of the crowds on October 17th. We are tired. We are exhausted. We are wounded. Uh, we're afraid of COVID. And we're afraid of violence because uh, some of the protests that have happened in the last many months did develop into, you know, scenes of violence, sometimes of a sectarian nature, which was really had a chilling effect on people. So they said, we are regrouping as a protest movement. And, you know, so don't, just don't judge us by the crowds. We're going to try to figure out how we can have an impact in other ways. And that's the tricky question because, you know, how do you translate what was a, you know, huge scale cross sectarian movement into sustainable, lasting, real change? And I don't think they've figured that out yet. Dorothy, can you tell us before we move to COVID-19 in a minute, can you tell us a bit more about the stakes that the U.S. has in the in Lebanon today and in this worsening crisis. You know, why is it that Lebanon matters to us, to U.S. national interests? And what do we what do we bring to the table? Like what leverage, what influence and tools? And are we working cooperatively with Macron and others in trying to move this forward? It's it's a deadlock. Oh, you know, the, it's pretty clear that there's a huge resistance among the oligarchs to really compromising on this, and it just gets worse and worse. Why do we care and what can we bring to the table? Well, great question, Steve. And in a nutshell, Lebanon matters. It is a democracy in a tricky part of the world, and it's a multi-confessional society, which, you know, for all its woes, you know, has figured out, you know, how to have, you know, all of these different faith groups living in a pretty small plot of land in relative peace, albeit with a government system that was, you know, designed to perpetuate uh, inefficiencies and gives everyone a veto power. There are key interests that we have in this region, security, stability. We want these countries, these neighboring countries to live in peace with one another. We want Lebanon to be able to assert sovereignty over its own borders. We want to deprive the Lebanese territory to malign actors uh, who would use it uh, to threaten Israel, for example, or to uh, otherwise promote Iran's agenda in the region. I'm talking about Hezbollah here. ISIS also has its size on this country. And just a few weeks ago, there was a pretty significant takedown of an ISIS cell up in the northern part of the country by the Lebanese armed forces. So we've got huge interests at stake here, but we also have allies who care about it. And you're absolutely right to talk about President Macron's efforts. Other uh, European countries care, as do other countries in the region. So the United States is part of the International Support Group for Lebanon, which meets under the UN auspices. It includes the P5 and several other major donor countries. By the way, I should mention also Lebanon hosts somewhere between a million and 1.5 million refugees. So we care from a humanitarian perspective too. 
about both the, the well-being of these vulnerable populations, but also trying to find sustainable solutions. On the COVID question, when you look at Lebanon and the United States, the pattern's remarkably similar. In the March-April timeframe, both countries went into lockdowns. There was pretty high consensus, pretty high compliance. In the United States, we had, you know, some of our survey groups were astonished that we had 80, 85 percent consensus around the wisdom of going this way. Similar thing was observed in, in Lebanon. And then over the course of the summer, as things were relaxed, we began to see a rebound. And in both countries, in the case of Lebanon, August 4th, a Beirut explosion really kicked the pins out of a, a lot of the uh, of the health sector itself, damaged three hospitals, uh, destroyed three hospitals, damaged four others. Uh, there was we and we began to see a, a, a dramatic surge in acceleration. And we've seen that here in the United States. We've seen that in Lebanon. Both places are facing a sort of runaway, uncontrolled pandemic at the moment. We now see this weekend a two-week lockdown will be coming into force in Lebanon. There's a lot of concern about basic capacity that the health system is is itself imploding and at risk of collapse. And the capacities are very limited. Say a bit about where Lebanon is right now in the COVID response and what can the U.S. do to assist when we ourselves are in the midst of a runaway crisis? Yeah, thank you, Steve. The situation is very worrisome and the health sector was already in crisis even before the pandemic hit. Partly this is a reflection of the, the economic crisis because, you know, the health sector relies on, you know, importing spare parts for all the medical equipment, importing medicines. And with the medical professionals, you know, we're now competing as medical staff here have lost 80% of their take-home pay as the value of the local currency relative to the dollar has plummeted, you know, they can find much greener pastures uh, by going to accept an assignment in the Gulf or Canada or somewhere else. So that was the kind of baseline. Then COVID hit. And as you pointed out, then August 4th, uh, Beirut port explosion hit. And understandably, you know, in the immediate aftermath, People were focused on saving lives. So you didn't see a whole lot of PPE or social distancing, you know, in those, you know, 48 hours immediately after that explosion where thousands of people had shards of glass all over their bodies. You know, it was just horrific. They actually ran out of sutures. That's how bad it was in, in the Beirut hospitals, those that weren't destroyed. What we've had, you know, the, the numbers started spiking up close to, I want to say, 600 cases a day after the, the Beirut port explosion. And I was worried then. Then they started creeping up to 1,000 cases a day, even less sustainable. And just yesterday, they almost hit 2,000. A couple of days in the last week, they have skirted 2,000 cases a day. So we know the hospitals are lacking sufficient ICU beds and COVID treatment facilities. And I did just see that Qatar is going to send two field hospitals. This was in the media just today, I think, to help them cope with COVID. But they've got a huge problem on their hands. And in Lebanon, like many other places in the world, I think they're dealing with COVID fatigue and maybe also a little bit of resignation 
Some of the misinformation about COVID uh, is is out there too. People believe that the, the strain in Lebanon is is a little less virulent. I have no idea if there's any grounds for that, but I, I suspect not. But there's a belief that the population here is younger, so maybe that's been uh, part of uh, what has allowed their society to weather it uh, a little with uh, lower morbidity than some other countries. Has there been any talk of preparations for the introduction of a vaccine, or is it, or is this current crisis just crowding out any discussion so far on that? You know, they they have been talking about a vaccine, and what what I heard is that, that they've signed up, and and I, I I honestly have to confess I don't know how that mean what that means exactly. Does that mean they've they've been coordinating with the WHO probably? Presumably, they're part of the Covax facility. I mean, there's the something called the ACT accelerator that was launched in the spring and which has enlisted lots and lots of middle income and lower middle, lower income countries as as partners in hopes of getting uh, affordable access to a safe and effective vaccines become available. So would, they would have signed up for that with no guarantee at the moment what that will mean. Yeah. And as with any form of international assistance, what is going to be super tricky, I can predict, will be, you know, how the vaccine, once it is available, is apportioned in the population. Because everything in the society is done with a fair amount of uh, scorekeeping among the various confessional groups. And it'll be really important that there be transparency so that people have confidence that whatever system is used is, is fair and equitable. So who are we willing to work with on the humanitarian response? We won't work with Hezbollah. We won't work with a, a corrupt and ineffective Lebanese government. Who are our best partners? Have the boundaries changed at all in the midst of this urgent humanitarian crisis? How do we think about a sustainable relationship on relief going forward? Yeah, very good question. And and you're right. Working with Hezbollah is absolutely a red line for us. And so that has meant that we do not um, provide assistance to the Ministry of Public Health there is some talk about that portfolio shifting to away from Hezbollah in the next government. We'll have to see if that's the case, that that could be a game changer. Again, we'll have to see. But even absent that, we've for a long time been very careful about providing direct assistance to the government just because, you know, we have to be confident that any assistance we do provide is is going to be used in the best possible way. And because of the you know, endemic corruption that this country suffers, there will have to be a lot of checks and balances um, before we get back into the pattern of providing direct governmental assistance. But fortunately, we do have a lot of other very capable and trusted partners. I would include in these, among others, the UN agencies, the International Committee of the Red Cross. We've worked very closely with the American University of Beirut and its medical center, and also the uh, Lebanese American University Hospital. And I, I have to also mention the Lebanese Armed Forces. They are the most trusted institution on a national level. And even though it's not their job to do humanitarian response, they're one of the few, if not the only organization that is trusted to deliver humanitarian assistance fairly. 
And, you know, so when the August 4th explosion happened, for example, all of a sudden this already overburdened military had the job of becoming the master logisticians of a massive influx of humanitarian assistance, quite often uncoordinated. And so, and they, they did it. And I wouldn't say it was always done with complete perfection, but they were doing it on the fly. One day I showed up at the airport to meet a, a C-17 full of U.S. assistants. And the general there told me 70 aircraft had arrived that day, many of them uh, unannounced, you know, like full of random humanitarian assistance. So just by way of illustration. Do you see Hezbollah trying to capitalize on the disorder in Lebanon now? Where do you see them being most successful and where do you see them being most unsuccessful? You know, I think we would be naive not to. They're going to try to score points wherever they can. And, you know, we saw this a little bit earlier in the economic crisis, for example, when Lebanon tried to blame all of the country's economic woes on the United States. And, you know, they accused us of starving the country and and preventing dollars from entering Lebanon, all of which is hogwash, of course. And State Department leaders and I pushed back pretty hard on these baseless accusations, pointing out that, you know, Lebanon is facing a classic crisis in confidence. So we're not preventing dollars from entering the market. Investors are not sending their dollars here because they're concerned about the fundamentals. So that blame game uh, needed to be turned off and and it was uh, pretty effectively. Although you may have seen, I got banned by a judge who prevented um, until his order was overturned any local media from interviewing me as a result of that intervention. You're no longer persona non grata. You know, there there are those who are always gonna try to consider me PNG'd, but I'm just doing my job. That's great. Um, On the question of refugees and foreign workers, I mean, this is a massive portion of the population within Lebanon. What does that mean in terms of the COVID-19 response? And what does that mean about the deeper humanitarian emergency? Yeah, thank you for that question, because it, it is a huge preoccupation. There's somewhere between a million and a million and a half refugees in this uh, small land. And my worst case scenario imagined, you know, COVID kind of ripping through some of these communities where they were living in very close quarters, not always with, you know, the benefit of running water or proper hygienic conditions. And, you know, in the early days, the government did manage to keep a lid on the the spread of the pandemic. But we have seen in more recent weeks that it has been hitting uh, not only the refugee community, but the surrounding kind of informal settlements where you have a lot of impoverished communities, also including migrant laborers. So these are vulnerable populations who we really do collectively need to try to help protect. Some of it is through education. And, you know, we can talk about some of the very low technology interventions that can help protect people with hand washing and mask wearing and proper distancing, avoiding, you know, congregating indoors. A lot easier to do when you're not in inclement weather, but let's, you know, see what we can do. But, you know, these communities are also the ones, not surprisingly, 
who are going to be the hardest hit on the second and third order effects, you know, losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, facing probable discrimination for an effect of some of the demonization that we see at the societal level. Dorothy, before we run out of time, I want to I want to touch on a couple of things. One is what do you need from Washington? And when I say Washington, I mean broadly broadly defined to include groups like our own, members of Congress, advocates, media. Obviously, you're within the administration and appealing to all of the different arms of the administration to support you. What do you need? Well, uh, thank you for that question, because I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say I need more. I, I need more attention. I need more resources. I need more, you know, ability to uh, have an impact these interests that we talked about, these vital interests that are at stake here, aren't going to just, you know, the issues aren't going to solve themselves. And I have been blessed as ambassador to enjoy huge support from within the government. And, and by that, I mean both the executive branch and the, the Congress. You know, from my assistant secretary, David Schenker, who's been out here twice in, in just in the past two months or so. Uh, Undersecretary David Hale, Secretary of State Pompeo, follows Lebanon personally on a regular basis. You know, I, I can't buy that as an ambassador. It's it's hugely impactful for me, but I need even more, you know, is what I'm saying. The whole interagency came together in, you know, a beautiful way that was quite heartening after the August 4th explosion. I had the leader, the commander of the Central Command. I had, you know, Cabinet secretaries ranging from DOD, FBI, which provided assistance uh, investigating the blast, um, all kinds of people from USAID uh, on the humanitarian front and others helping to figure out like what the needs are and help figure out how to pick up the pieces. But ultimately, it's going to be a resource game. And there are a lot of competing resources out there, a lot of competing needs for those resources. And, you know, we are not done with the humanitarian response, either with respect to COVID or with respect to the, the post-blast. And with thinking of the people who lost everything in the blast, whose windows have been blown out, whose roofs caved in, and winter is very fast approaching. So I'm thinking of people like that who really need help. And, and I'm not suggesting that the United States has to do it all, but whatever we can do, it's it's hugely impactful. And I also want to give a shout out to the Lebanese American community, which has been very generous and with whom we have partnered when we haven't been able to do super cool things like meet immediate needs for cancer medications. We identified that need to them and they figured out a way to get a plane load full of cancer meds here after two containers full of that stuff went up in smoke in the uh, August 4th blast. As, as we look forward to a changing administration, what do you think the most important aspects of Lebanese policy need to be maintained between a Trump administration and a Biden administration? I get asked a lot, and I was asked a lot in the run-up to the election about um, U.S. policy and, and whether and how it might change. I really see continuity when I look ahead. Our policy here is sound uh, and we're having an impact. We're putting pressure on the bad guys. And by those, I mean those who are 
engaging in terrorism or massive corruption. And we're trying to empower those who are forces for good, whether through our interventions to try to do, you know, serious reforms to get their economy back on a sustainable footing and trying to empower individuals to provide for themselves with job skills, with, you know, business plans. So we're trying to, I I talked a little bit earlier about making available our uh, mediation services so that Lebanon and Israel can hopefully delineate this uh, maritime border between the two countries. That could provide one small glimmer of hope for the Lebanese economy as they look to explore and potentially exploit the oil and gas resources that might be out there. Again, it would be a long time coming, but that kind of glimmer of hope could be very effective in their economy right now. Dorothy, we try and close all of these podcasts on a question of what gives you hope and hope and optimism amidst this in, incredibly difficult environment. And in the case of Lebanon, people, uh, close observers and Lebanese themselves are questioning, you know, will the storied resilience of the Lebanese give way to a kind of hopelessness and despair under the force of these circumstances? What gives you hope and strength in these in this particularly dark moment? I love that question. Thank you. And it is such an easy one to answer. It's the young people. I have been fortunate to be able to interact with some very promising young people who are active, engaged, asking questions, and being self-critical about where the country is, where it should be going, and how they, as you know, tomorrow's leaders, want to get there. Some of these young people had the good fortune of being able to study in the United States through the YES program, uh, something I'm a huge fan of, and just was life-changing for them. Others, you know, I've met through other opportunities. Seeing the young people who came out with their brooms and their, their trash cans to literally help pick up the pieces after that August 4th explosion, I mean, it was incredibly moving. They were doing what the government should have been doing, quite frankly, and it was an army of volunteers. So it's that spirit that absolutely gives me hope. I, I've seen the Lebanese resilience in, in action. It's not something I want to take for granted. I don't think that's fair to them, but I want to do what I can to nurture it. Thank you. On behalf of all of us here, John and myself and Jake Kurtzer and the Humanitarian Agenda, I want to thank you for the friendship and generosity you've shown each of us and, and to CSIS when you came here years ago as a intern to Zbigniew Brzezinski. I want to thank you for the service to our country over the last 28 years of your foreign service career. And for thank you for sharing with us today so generously all of these different dimensions, your thoughts and insights on all of these different dimensions of, of what's going on in Lebanon and what the U.S. is attempting to accomplish there. And in terms of what you need from Washington, well, we'll certainly stay engaged and do all we can here at our corner at CSI. So thank you so much.